In the year 2000, a 15-year-old underhandle mafia boy launched a major denial-of-service attack. The attack, named Rivolta, meaning riot in Italian, brought down Yahoo, eBay, CNN, and Amazon, resulting in an estimated $1.7 billion in damages. This is the story of Michael Calce. Detective unit, I think my camera is tilted. We are truly sitting here and watching my hair dry yet again. And uh, I have gathered us all here today for the first true crime book of the year, for the first deep dive. My All of your videos last for like two hours. They're all deep dives. Anyways, anyways, this video doesn't really have the weekly cleanse. It doesn't really have the introduction because this is all I have been doing this week, reading this book, reading this case, eating all of the content that was out there online on it. And truly, that was it. That was it. I have done nothing else but live, breathe, and eat this case in order to try to make you understand why this story is so gripping, to make you understand the technology behind it and like how I picture it, at least in my head. Probably a lot of it will be wrong. So stick around and tell me what I have got wrong when it comes to this story. But this book is written by Michael Kalcha, who was involved in the denial of service attacks, and also by Craig Silverman, who is a journalist. And I don't know what the ratio was, right? I don't know, was it like a 50-50 thing? Was one person writing more than the other? But the book is a motherfucking page-turner. If you are into hacking, if you are into like knowing the history of hacking, other hacks, but also especially if you are interested in knowing more on this story, after this video, this is the book. This is the book that you should read. I don't know, like it had mixed reviews online, because I review it on Goodreads after everything. Should I put my Goodreads? Link below so you guys see what I read. It's not always true crime, okay? However, I loved it. Personally, I found this book to be so interesting, especially for the times, because obviously, you know, as a 90s kid, that is when I also started using the internet, and I was trying to portray to myself through, like, MSN or like different messenger services at the time and like that's kind of how I'm going to try to relay this story to you So yes, it might be wrong in so many points because the way I picture it I'm like, oh, this is how I picture it. and then it might not have anything to do with reality So stay delusional and stick around after I finished the book, right? I was really trying to process like okay cool. I'm weak towards journalist books that's understandable. They know how to write. They know how to get you hooked. However, what is truly about this book that made you so obsessed? Maybe that is why you rated it like five stars compared to like some other ratings online. And I think there is a bias, definitely, of course. There is a bias. Whenever you like something, you're probably biased towards something that's in it. So, of course, I try to overthink every single book that I read. And I have realized with this one, the reason I was so gripped and so hooked is because with Michael Culture, he says it himself, but you can also really see that this man was born to hack. Yes, maybe he was doing a certain thing. He was kind of more of a malicious hacker, let's say. He was doing it for the wrong reasons or the reasons that he, as a 15-year-old, imagined were right. And then he kind of shifted. He shifted gears. He turned his career in a different direction. However, still, what is so prevalent it is this man was born to do this. He was born to do this. And that, to me, 
is so appealing. And some of you motherfuckers wake up every day and you live love and love through your job, okay? You log into your laptops and you love what you do and you live for it and you have found your passion and 24-7 you're just happy about where your life is going and what you're doing. And I envy you. If you are that person, if you recognize yourself in anything that I have just said, just know you're lucky and I envy you. And if you are born to do something and you're doing it, that is, that is truly something that I'm crazy about. I am crazy about and that is probably why I fucking love this book. But I will only be covering Michael's story. As I mentioned, he covers like the history of hacking, certain details from like other books by other hackers, and then also some of the other hacks that are kind of relevant to this story, but I will not be mentioning them because this is already going to be a really long one. So if you want any of those details, beyond Michael's story after this video, or if you just want to actually read on Michael's story, get his book. Get his book. That is it. That is it. However, now, in the classic Mysteries with Maya way, after I stop being out of breath, Jesus fucking Christ, you're 30 years old. You're 30 years old, you middle-aged cunt. In the classic Mysteries of Maya way, I will now give you the short of the case, tell you what happens in the case, and then we're gonna go and dissect every single thing. Starting from Michael's background, then going into how he got into computers, into games, what his passion for hacking was to begin with, the first hacks, then the Project Revolta, and then obviously how the FBI caught him, and the arrest and the aftermath of everything. So that is really what you can expect. You can expect everything. We cover everything. Oh. The short of the case is that in February of 2000, the FBI named Mafia Boy as a suspect in the series of online attacks that had targeted some of the giants online. So I mentioned some of them already, CNN, Yahoo, eBay, and E-Trade. These websites were slowed down or completely cut off as a result of massive denial-of-service attacks. So, Michael describes this in the way that just like you would jam a phone system with the multitude of calls to prevent anybody else from coming through and getting through to you, somebody had bombarded the web servers with so many requests that they were unable to serve content to the people that were logging online onto those websites. So let me quickly explain denial of service or DOS attacks, otherwise none of this is really going to make sense. So in one such attack, the attacker uses the network of computers that they have hijacked, and then they use this to flood the targeted website with the phony server requests, and this in turn leaves no bandwidth for legitimate traffic. So if you were to, let's say, log onto any such website like eBay or CNN, and somebody, a hacker, is attacking it, at first it would take really long time to load. Like, usually, you know, it would just be a couple of seconds, cool, you are there exposed to all the content. So, in turn, like, when this website is under attack, it would first take, like, really long time for the page to load, and then, soon enough, you will get that display of, like, this page is unavailable. And this 
can then just result in you refreshing the page, the page still remaining unavailable, and this can last from a couple of minutes to hours sometimes on end. It really depends on the hijacked computers and that network and like how strong that network of phony servers is in order for the hacker to then remain basically in the possession and in the ownership of whatever their target website is. As Michael would explain the DOS attacks in his book, he said it's as if you bombard someone with an avalanche of server requests until his or her network is paralyzed. It is as if you've sent so many people rushing into a small building that no one can get in or get out. After a while, no one can even move. By the late 1990s, it seemed like there was one of these denial-of-service attack tools released every month, and hackers would really go online and then use these tools to show up who has more power. It would really be like hacker-on-hacker -hacker crimes, and just different hacker groups showing that they are more powerful, that they can have these denial-of-service attacks, and that they can hold the website down for longer compared to whatever the previous attack was. And what Michael needed for his own attack was enough bandwidth and the servers will be under his control, with him not in danger of being taken out. But Michael will be taken out, just few months post his attacks. Before I tell you how, we have to go into the background to understand the why. When speaking of his family, one word really comes to mind, and Michael doesn't use it himself, but I don't know of any other word that would describe the culture family in a more perfect way than describing them as hustlers. His grandpa Lorenzo came to Canada, to Montreal, in 1954, and he really started just from, like, shining shoes, doing some menial jobs. However, then he worked his way up and became a vice president of a company, and by 1982 he owned his own business. So, his grandpa worked in manufacturing industry. He created a new design for the sightseeing buses in Canada, and then would go on to design and manufacture many more. Basically, the whole family will eventually end up working on buses, like designing them, working in the manufacturing industry, and this is what his dad would also start doing. So, like his grandpa Lorenzo, his dad spent much of his life working with buses. He would quit his job at a bank to help his dad and Michael's grandpa, launch and run a company. They sold that company in 1997, and then his dad worked at another bus company to the day where that book was written by Michael in 2011. Because of the hard work that both grandpa and his dad put in, Michael's childhood was pretty easy. And not just easy, but like growing up, he had a nice house, his brother and him had everything that any kids would need, but because his grandpa and his dad worked for the bus company as well, whenever like the school sports team needed to travel like for an excursion, for just a school trip, well, they always had a big comfy bus ready to take them to their destination. So, you might think that Michael was spoiled as a kid, but the house really seemed to have rules, and his parents had different parenting styles. 
Michael was born in 1984 in West Island of Montreal, and his mom was more of a stricter parent. She was the one handing down a discipline, making sure the homework was done, making sure the kids do their weekly chores. And then I put in the script, she was also the one behind his intelligence, which sounds like Sounds wrong, okay? What I mean by that is that she was the one giving him the books and also making sure that she would give him, like, the Mensa problems to resolve. And he loved that. From the early age, Michael just loved deep diving, solving problems and figuring things out. His dad, based off of him being a successful businessman, was teaching his sons about business from the early age, how to make a living, how to size somebody up, how to easily interact with people. And he also taught Michael what hackers would refer to as social engineering skills. Because most people know how to talk to people, so, like, what's known as people skills. However, not everybody knows how to negotiate, not everybody knows how to size somebody up. And what Michael would see from his dad is that he really knew everybody. He knew how to speak to different kinds of people. So it seemed like a blissful upbringing, they didn't have any money struggles or anything like that. And that remained so until Michael was five years old. This is going to be when his parents get divorced. So his mom will get the custody of the kids, but Michael would spend every other weekend at Dad's, and he would be bored out of his mind. Systems like Nintendo became hugely popular, and also the video game industry was on the rise. And I just know, because I put it in the script, I just know. The first question, right? Right, right, because I know, obviously. But just to be completely sure, if I had the opportunity to interview Michael Couch, this would be my first question to him. Did he play Super Mario Nintendo version? Like, the old one, where he goes and opens the doors in this castle and then jumps into the pictures, and it's a completely different world. And it's like the mushrooms and the sky kind of gayest motherfucking bloodbuzz when he looks up and that fucking thing opens and he's like in the sky on the clouds collecting scars. Anyways, there is always one thing in that game that scarred me, scarred me for life. It was that baby penguin and the mother penguin. You had to return the baby penguin to the mother penguin. Who the fuck thought of that? And you had to do it with like <laughs> the funniest shit. You go down the slide, but you are also trying to protect your life and the baby penguin's life and you bear the responsibility for this baby penguin's life. Psychopathic people. Psychopathic people have fought of that game, and my dad had to deal with it for so long, because I, <laughs> I could not bear the responsibility of somebody else's life, even though they are a character in the game. If you don't get this reference, I am not too old, you are too young, you have had a shit childhood. That's it. That's it. Let's just continue with the story before I lose my fucking plot. Everything changed, right? Like, he's playing these video games, which I completely know for sure, mm -hmm. for sure, because everybody did this in the 90s and was scarred for life. And now the only comfort that they get on YouTube is watching replay of Super Mario for like eight hours, okay? Everything changed when his dad got him a present that is going to change his life, which will be a computer. So in the beginning, like many kids, he's just online exploring and playing games. I remember my dad plopping it down and the first moment I powered it up, just hearing it churning and making all the bleeping sounds, waiting for my commands, I knew this would play a major role down the line in my life. The possibilities really seemed endless. 
I was always into puzzles and building. I really loved Lego and the appeal behind Lego was the fact that you can construct anything from it. Years pass, his parents remarry, and then one day he sees this envelope in his father's house. The year was 1993 and he was nine years old. And this package that was on top of the pile of the email in his dad's house was from a company that at this point he wasn't really familiar with. And the company was America Online, AOL. He never really even heard of this, but this was like a promotional flyer. And it had promised internet, games, chat for 30 days. All that he needed to have was a modem. So he immediately asked himself, what the fuck is a modem and how do I get one? Because that gives me 30 days of free games. He manages to convince his dad to get him a modem, because there's no really harm done. Like, Michael is going to go online and play these games for free for 30 days. He doesn't even have to have his dad's credit card. So now it's a completely different world. Because Michael is online and obviously downloading games for 30 days, cool, yeah, that's great. However, what if he was to have them for longer? This is when he discovers the type of wares the pirated software is online. So he starts looking for different wares chat channels and manages to find some. In these chat rooms, he was always pretending to be somebody else, more of an adult. And it just seemed like he might have come across as annoying to some people, because the next thing he remembers is being kicked out of the chat room and his AOL connection being lost. And this is how he learned about what is known as punting. Between six and nine, I was reading programming books, construction books, hardware, software. I like challenges. I like to know the way things work. It took a little bit of a turn when I realized that the AOL trial that I had was only 30 days long. So I had to be a little bit crafty and come up with a way to stay online. I was like a nuisance of a child, you know, a bit of an instigator. I would go into these chats on the AOL trial, making fun of everybody in the chat. And one guy came about and he's like, yeah, sorry, you need to go. And I was like, like, what are you going to do about it? And he did something at the time that was called a punt. He punted me offline. And at that point, I was like, you know, what happened? Because my connection to AOL was severed. So I had no idea how someone somewhere across the globe was able to cut my connection from AOL. Punting just means somebody knocking somebody else offline by hitting them with so much data that their connection becomes severed. And these punters seem to have a huge amount of power over others on AOL. And Michael immediately starts being really intrigued by this, by the ability to attack somebody else. Now, he wanted to punt someone. At this moment in time, Michael is looking to punt somebody and he wants different applications, because you need to have applications to do this. However, he recently fucked up and basically used his dad's card to get a bunch of Legos. Like, he just opened up a catalog and ordered a bunch of Legos, and now, like, their garage was full of them. And, of course, he knew his dad is not going to be as willing to give him the credit card for wares, towards punting, but also he still really wanted more games. And this AOL trial that he had just got because he got the modem was about to expire. It was only 30 days long. 
we've all been there, right? Online, you really want to watch a show, you go and find a shitty website that gives you so many, so many pop-up ads, but you've got to rewatch Lost, okay? You have to do it. Six seasons of Lost because the storytelling was so great. Sounds like a personal story? Because it is. So, he gets crafty. He found an application that allowed him to log into AOL and appear to other people as if he was an admin. And as an admin now, well, rather pretend admin, right, he starts messaging other users. This is what he's going to hit them with, which I think for a nine-year-old is quite exceptional. It's, he really wanted these games. He would say, excuse me, due to a power outage at one of our facilities, we need to verify your password. Sure enough, the first four out of four people just handed over their login details, the email address and the password. So, he started using other people's account information in order to stay online. And he would say in the book that this made him realize just how gullible users were. But before even processing this, he just focused on looking for hacking tools. Now that he was actually online for free, he wanted to actually learn how to stay online for free just forever. With more and more tools in hand, Michael began to feel like he was in control of the internet, rather than the other way around. And this started just possessing him, like being so intoxicating that he just wanted more and more. So he would go sometimes into these chat rooms and kind of block people from chatting with one another by using different spamming methods. Some methods of choice were like overtaking someone's screen and then just like a giant middle finger popping up on the screen and then being kicked out. However, punting was still his favorite method. He just loved punting people who got on his nerves. And the idea of using a flood of data to knock people offline was just so appealing to him. His early fascination with punting would come into play years later when he started working with another hacker to build a weapon that he hoped would send rival groups fleeing for their online lives. However, at this point, Michael being nine years old, he was nothing more than a kiddie. This is the term that people use online to describe wannabe hackers who just use other people's applications, because they don't really have their own skills, to just wreak havoc online. At this point, he feels in control, which is what many children of divorce would want. But online, he's still a kiddie, a wannabe hacker. Please, I have to use my master's degree in some way. And this is my way of using it, okay? Because criminology, criminal psychology, it has to be used in some way. So, let's recap. Now, please, let me profile Michael some more, because nobody asked for it, but I'll still do it. We have young Michael, who every second weekend stays at his father's condo in Montreal. At the age of six, he felt disconnected from his friends and affected by his parents' divorce. In order to help him cope, his dad brought him his own computer, which quickly captured his attention. And the idea of being able to dictate every aspect of the computer's functions was thrilling to him, providing him with a sense of authority that he couldn't find in any other aspect of his life. We go back to our timeline and Michael pursuing games online and also really wanting to do punting, wanting to attack users online, but on a higher level, because he knows at this point 
he is just a kid who is online. Nobody really would take anything that he does, like the middle finger of the screen, that will not be taken seriously. And this is when somebody on the channel tells him about a chat network that was called IRC, or Internet Relay Chat. This is when, like, slowly this whole internet onion, right, started peeling off for him. Like, these layers started showing up for him. And he knew that IRC was known to many serious internet users. However, he was just exciting to discover one of those networks. IRC is a text-based chat system for instant messaging. So you can have different channels, you could have different forum discussions, and you can also have private messages as well as chats and data transfer and file sharing. So interface-wise, think MSN. Again, you just had to be there and you are too young if you have not been on MSN or MySpace. So Michael downloads IRC and he needed a handle in order to introduce himself. The handle he would choose here would be Archangel. Because from what I remember from one of the interviews, he was named after Archangel Michael. So it didn't really have anything to do with religion. He just sounded cool. Now, he was not the only one looking to progress. He was not the only one looking to punt people some more. And he was not the only one looking for games. There was a hacker group that was running this channel. And he starts speaking with the lead hacker called Dracus. He makes a plea, he just kind of explains like how hungry he is to learn, and this guy somehow falls for it and lets him in. So a new problem arised when I realized that I wasn't the only one trying to get video games for free. I noticed at the top it said that there was a hacker group that was running this channel and they were in the process of recruitment. When I spoke to the leader of the hacker group, he suggested that, like, look, you know, you're too young for this. You, you have no experience. Why should I even, like, explore the idea of letting you in our group? And I had to make a plea with him, you know, basically saying, like, I'm a very hungry type of person. And he had basically no choice to give me a chance. And he let me in the hacker group. This is exactly what Michael had been looking for, because he had been working solo, and he had been looking for a hacker crew to learn how to break into networks ever since he was first punted off AOL. So he knew, however, that he didn't have any skills, he didn't have any wares, he didn't really have anything to offer them. Like, they had no use for him, but he truly wasn't going to let that stop him. When Dracus let him into the hacker group, he invited him to private chat room that was just populated with different hackers. So he received a private message from Dracus giving him the rundown on the network, like which channels he should avoid and not create hassle in, and then the hacker groups to also watch out for. So at first, he had like no idea what the hell he was talking about, like how dangerous can it even be if he was just yet to pop a middle finger in a different hacker group. However, soon he was to learn that he is just completely naive, that there was a lot of sinister things going on here. Dracus also told him to install this open-source operating system on his computer if he wanted to advance faster, and now it was up for Michael to prove his worth. He was up for a challenge, and Dracus wanted to see if he can run some simple attacks. This is a sideline, but truly, after reading this book, the 
belief that I have is that the knowledge that Michael has was purely because of his luck and because he just knew how to contact the right people. He knew who the right people in those chats were and then those people took him under their wing. This is exactly what Drakus does. And Michael starts reading books, on programming, on computer networking, anything that he could find. He started writing simple applications as well and then testing them out on his own computer, or rather his dad's computer. So he would write a program to keep track of his hockey cards and just like a simple tool that allowed him to search by year and company. And he was just so ecstatic every single time when he would run it and see that it worked. And this is when he started discovering vulnerable networks. My role was hacking into other sites and networks and using their bandwidth to create what was known as an XDCC bot that offers out the games and the programs. After I had proved my worth, I was recruited by TNT Force, the most elite hacker group in the world at that point. I was 13 years old. Everything seemed normal on the outside, you know, nobody knew. So I would spend a lot of my time doing this at night and not really sleeping. I would sleep the first two classes of school every day just to make sure I can stay up late at night, you know, to get the job done. He starts discovering vulnerable networks and with the help of Drakus, exploiting certain vulnerabilities in order to compromise machines or networks, ideally with root access. But then suddenly, as he's finally becoming a hacker at the ripe age of 12, the world as he knew it had shifted. This is because Michael, at the age of 12, just lost his best friend in a car accident. Michael would have two friends that he mentions throughout this book. One will be Nick, who he would lose at the age of 12, and the other one would be Brian. And the loss of Nick meant that he no longer had a friend who shared his passion about computers. By this point, his online life was already separated from his offline world, but the death of his best friend just completely enhanced this, because school was just not the same without his best friend. He started caring less and less about classes, about grades, and he just resorted to computers and to internet. This was his hideaway, this was his comfort place. And his quest to become a hacker now just became a full-fledged obsession. Michael needed someone to show him the hacking ropes, so he began reaching out to hacking crews. He hoped to be taken on as a trainee, but no one was interested in an 11-year-old punk who only knew AOL. But Michael was persistent. Finally, a crew called IWC agreed to take him on. IWC was small and led by a hacker named Dracus. To Michael's disappointment, they barely had any enemies to speak of. Michael had little hope to participate in hacker battles like the ones in Hackers. They mainly specialized in trading pirated games, software, and media. At the time, most internet users, including hackers, relied on dial-up. Obviously, this meant ultra-slow download times. High-speed broadband did exist in 1995, but it was only available to big institutions like companies and universities. Companies typically had more stringent security so hackers would target universities. The group's leader, Drakus, gave Michael a simple task. He would run a hacking script that probed university servers for weaknesses. It looked for root access, which would give IWC complete control of the server. This would allow IWC to siphon off its broadband, which they would use for high-speed downloading. 
It was grunt work, but it was the only way he could contribute, so Michael did it. Over time, he built up a collection of more than 100 university servers, all under his control. This took hundreds of hours of work. IRC was now where he belonged and channeled all of the grief through. And this was just one more layer of him feeling like he's in control of something post-divorce and like his parents separating and him kind of like going to his dad and discovering the internet and now post the death of his best friend. So during the next couple of months, all of a sudden, he loses track of another person, and this person would be Dracus, the guy that got him into the IRC in the first place. So the leader of the group vanishes into thin air, leaving Michael and the other members of the hacker group, IWC, worried about what had happened to him and also how to continue running the group. A side note on Dracus, there are some people here, some hacker handles that I could Google, some hacker groups that are very Googleable and very dangerous even in 2022, and there are some people that just aren't. And Dracus is one of those people that I couldn't find anywhere online. Doesn't really mean anything, doesn't really mean that he doesn't exist online, he's not just operating under the same handle or a different handle, and I just couldn't find it on the first page of Google. But still, just interesting to think how in 2000, like, probably some of these hackers that have ruled the internet and have shut so much of it down by these attacks today just might be doing a completely, completely different thing. So now he doesn't have a mentor, right? And he is looking how to get recruited into the elite groups. Constant, constant need to prove himself. So, for Michael, he had to attack somebody to prove his worth. And this first attack would be on the biggest channel on Fnet. And Fnet is one of the IRC networks. So, picture this in your head, okay? I know it's complicated. Okay, we have IRC, so we have, like, a big chat, and then we have Fnet, major network on it, and then, like, a Slack channel, we have Exceed, which is, like, the channel within the Fnet that Michael is about to attack. The reason, obviously there was a reason why Michael aimed for this particular channel, and this was because it was maintained by the long-serving hacking group known as MedCrew. Taking over the channel would be easy, it just depended how powerful of an attack this was, like how long it will last, how powerful it would be, like what kind of impression would it even make for those people. And it also depended how careful the owners of the chat were. And in any chat, there would be an ad. Again, that's why I'm picturing it as a Slack channel. Because there would be, like, an ad symbol preceding the name, so you knew who the owners of the channels were. In order to take over this channel, what Michael did was he scanned all of the operators to see if any of the computers had a weakness that he could exploit. Once he found at least one, he would then run one of his programs and hijack that computer's connection. We are going to go into the short of this first, because later all of the dots are going to connect for you. So, to take over Exceed, what Michael did was he scanned all of the operators to see if any of the computers had a weakness that he could exploit. Once he found at least one, he then ran a program that he had found in order to hijack that computer's connection. 
Then he instructs that connection to give the operator status to his personal network of bots, which were usually university-owned servers that he had compromised. Remember from the early in the video when I described the DOS attacks? He compromises a bunch of networks in order to make it strong, in order to make that attack on whatever his target is super strong. With his own bots now set up as the operators of this channel, what he does is he works quickly to take the operator status away from all of the previous owner's bots. So that meaning that they're overloaded with phone calls, you can't reach them. So in an in, in aspect, that's the same thing like online. You can bombard a, a website with fake requests and essentially those fake requests will overwhelm the website and it will actually refuse access to legitimate users trying to access the site. So basically you're overloading them with data and fake requests that it renders their site offline. So his network of bots was large enough here and was able to knock all of this hacker group, med crew, out of the channel. It was fast, it was efficient, and the med crew operators were booted out. So he considered this to be a success. He had 12 channels under his control and had compromised three hacking crews. But what he was wondering about as a 12-year-old is, did anybody notice? Would he just forever be doing this on his own? Finally, somebody did notice. There was one of the bigger groups, actually, that is known as Alpha, that approached him. The members of Alpha had heard about him and were impressed by his work, so he was invited to join and he accepted and joined this hacker group. He was now officially a member of Alpha Hacking Group. He had a group and he was super happy, because by now he is 13 years old. And in the past seven years, he had gone from being the six-year-old learning DOS commands and playing games to being a hacker with a status. In the book, Michael would say that this is when his kiddie days were finally over. This was a huge transition for him, and he decided it was time to send Archangel to heaven. This is what I mean. There's some one-liners in this book that are just fucking brilliant. That handle served him well for years, but it was just linked to his kiddie days. He had to have something more powerful, with more energy, with some more vim. So, as usual, one day he logs on to the computer and goes online. But without realizing it, he was operating under a different handle. And this is because his brother used the same computer before to download music. Under an alias, Mafia Boy. He liked it as soon as he had seen it. He just remembers staring at those letters and thinking, this might sound intimidating to some people. Mafia Boy it is. This is a side note, and I'm only going to mention it here, but there have been quite a few articles that I have read during this research, and in the court records as well it is mentioned, where the prosecutors and some investigators do think that his brother might have actually been behind some of these attacks. That, yes, maybe this is how Mafia Boy as a handle was inspired, but that maybe some of the early attacks were committed by his brother. This could never be proven, however. His brother, I don't think, ever served any time for any of these. That's why I'm just mentioning it as a sideline, because yes, this is a cool story. However, also a lot of people think there is something more to it. 
the summer that year, as he is kicked out of school for bad behavior, because he doesn't care about school whatsoever anymore, and because of his poor grades, because this is truly possessing his life, before he moves schools, mom, his mom, finally agrees for him to actually move to his dad's place. So his brother Lorenzo already moved there a few months earlier, and Michael was excited to go. Aside from being with his brother, he just considered that living at the dad's might actually be a more lenient environment. Like, he might just be able to do whatever the fuck he wanted. What this meant is that the whole summer of 1999, you might think he will be out in Canada eating some beaver tails, living his best life. That is the only Canadian reference that I know. That and Avril. Avril made songs in 1999, right? Skater boy. Okay, listen. I will shut my mouth right now. Anyways, you might think he's enjoying his life. He's outside. Of course not. Of course not. He is spending the whole summer of 1999 learning as much as he could and compromising as many computers and networks as possible. And among those, there was one particular attack in June of 1999 that will eventually later be connected to him as well. So, these are the days of early internet, right? And there is this school in Oregon, US. So, we are going to the US of A. Shortly after noon, on Tuesday, June the 8th, 1999, the students at Sisters High School in Oregon started just noticing how the internet servers are just slow. The websites just aren't loading for them none of them could get to their files or their personal web pages. This obviously is a school in the US, right? So this isn't the school that he went to. However, pin this in your head, because when all the dots start connecting, really, I think this was one of Michael's big tests to see if for his attacks he can use the networks from, well, unis later, but here I think this was a test on a school to see if he can really just penetrate their networks and use them towards then bigger attacks later. This school had a student-operated internet service provider, ISP network called Outlawnet. Now, ISP, like, when you think about it, it sounds complicated. It's like, oh, what is that? It's just your internet provider. It's the company that provides internet for your house. So, here in the UK, think, like, Virgin Media, BT, whoever really does it for you. Those are, like, the bigger ones here. The goal was for Outlawnet to provide internet service to 500 students in the school district while generating revenue by serving local businesses and residents. And Outlawnet was run by a group of 22 students who created web pages, installed software, and managed accounts. Let's talk, however, what Michael actually did here, the impact of it. What he did was he breached the Outlawnet server using some vulnerable password that he had found out. This allowed him to establish a shell account and access the network. The main server was destroyed and more than 3,000 files were deleted. He also, once he penetrated this network, installed a sniffer program to capture all of the insecure passwords and the mail relay system that converted Outlawnet into a free email relay station. As a result, though, because this is internet service provider, right? It's not just providing the internet for the school, but once the whole world or everybody in Oregon, US, heard about this attack, customers started calling and flooding this company with calls. And because of this, 
The incident was reported to the local police, who quickly passes it on to the FBI in Portland. The way that Michael describes this attack in his book is by saying that he could root himself from Outlawnet. So then he would enter the IRC chatroom and make it appear as if his connection originated at some internet address like fbi.gov. He then used that server to help cover his tracks. However, at a certain point he realized that even this would contain logs of his activities, so he wiped this log clean. And it was likely a short time after that that the students started realizing something was wrong with their server. He would rarely wipe out a server that he had compromised, because he knew that even the deletion of the logs would mean that then the FBI, the police, if anybody was to ever go investigating, would be able to find the deletion of the logs that then might later lead to his IP address. Despite the fact, though, that the Outlawnet was a small-town ISP, the FBI treated this case as a serious crime, with some far-reaching implications, because launching a denial-of-service attack was a felony offense punishable by imprisonment. On June the 14th, just four days after this attack, the FBI steps in. They analyze the system logs, exactly what Michael thought that they would do, what anybody would do after a hack, and they track down a U.S. suspect, because, of course, he spoofed the IP address. So, they track down somebody in the U.S. who turned out to be just an innocent business owner whose systems have been hacked and then used towards that attack. And this businessman provided the FBI agents with a system log file. So, from his file, because his network was compromised, the FBI got another IP address. And this one led them to Sprint Canada. They knew, the FBI agents, that is, that it is still possible for this hacker to use the IP spoofing to deceive another computer into thinking a message was coming from an authorized IP address. But they were somehow confident that this IP address in Canada might just be the right one. Because of how Michael hid his trails, it actually took the agents until December to track that IP address in Montreal, Canada. From this point on, because of the resources that I could find online, we're going to be going through Michael's point of view and then also the FBI's point of view because of the court documents and the articles online. So, to give you the perspective of what the FBI was doing in June of 1999, they were just following the multiple sets of footprints and it would take them until December to see that the attack originated in Canada. Now, that month, the FBI contacted a guy called Mark Gosselin, who was a corporal with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So, basically, the FBI starts working with the Mounties in Canada. The FBI tells him that they had tracked the source of the attack back to the network belonging to Sprint Canada. Using the warrant, Corporal Gosselin obtains information from Sprint Canada and follows the trail to the ISP in Montreal, Delphi Supernet, so like another internet service provider. He discovers that the account he was interested in had been suspended months earlier by the ISP because the account owner was suspected of hacking. 
Although that account was inactive at this time, Corporal Gosselin was able to get the information about who had owned the account. They, at this point, didn't really even have the handle. They just had the address that the internet account was registered to. And the address was Michael's dad's house. So the FBI picks up the phone and calls his dad. I'm gonna put it on the screen, this phone call that I could find in his book. So... They ask, can they speak with the dad? He says he's speaking. They say they're the authorities from the US. He says, what does that have to do with me? They say that they want to inform him about some activity in his household. He asks what activity that is. And they say they have the reason to believe there's a hacking activity going on in his household. He says, hacking, what? The fuck does that even mean? Someone is using a computer to obtain illegal, unauthorized access to sensitive networks. His dad says he barely even knows about his computers, but he has young boys there playing games. The FBI confirms they are currently making an investigation. He says, that's fine. You must have made a mistake. Have a nice day. The FBI called the Calche residence, hoping to glean any information they could. Michael's father, John, picked up the phone. We have reason to believe there is hacking activity going on in your household, said the Fed. John was taken aback. I'm sorry, but I barely know how to use computers, and there's no one here that would be capable of that. This must be some kind of mistake. After some more back and forth, the Fed gave up and hung up the phone. With no conclusive proof, Gosselin and the FBI's case hit a dead end. This call spooks Michael's dad a little bit, and he kind of goes on and cancels the dial-up account. And the investigation gets filed away. Like, the FBI agents just didn't believe, like, oh, this is some house where the major hacking is happening. But the operation is going to continue, and a few months later, they will come knocking again. Now, going back to Michael, right? Like, Michael's point of view. This didn't really stop him. I mean, he didn't know that there was a whole FBI investigation going on from the school that he had hacked. So, you know, throughout the summer and December, he was just gaining new skills, learning how to get the access to all of the uni networks in town. He has moved schools, as I have mentioned, because the other one, basically the old one, expelled him. And now he's in Riverdale High School. There's an actual Riverdale High School. Like, that's not just a shitty... TV show. He is leading his two lives. I have put in the script, his Hannah Montana days begin. During the day, he describes himself as being a loving son, a best friend to so many people, and during the night, he's a mysterious boy online. He managed to move up the ladder in the FNET hacking community. He left Alpha, the hacking group, behind and joined a different hacking group called TNT. You know how I said I googled all of these groups and handles. TNT is still very much a big hacking group. Still very much operating. 2021, they had some big hack when it comes to Bitcoin. Still very much a group with, like, malicious hacking attacks. What attracted TNT to Michael is, at this point, he was kind of making, like, small moves online, but he was doing some damage. He had what is known as packet power. Now, packets are the small bundles of information that data are broken into in order to move over the internet. What that means is Michael had, by this point, compromised so many computers on big networks that he had a significant amount of bandwidth meaning he could do a lot of damage if he was to deploy 
all of those internet connections towards a target. He could easily marshal his bandwidth to attack a channel or an individual. I was part of a hacker network on a, on a chat, and it was we were kind of engaged in a huge war. And you know, nobody knew about this society unless you were a part of it. What kind of war? Like Bloods and Crips kind of war, or? <laughs> I mean, not exactly. We're not firing off pistols or yeah. something, but we're using packets as if they were pistols. Right. And packets is basically sending transmission from one computer to another. And it was the war of the hackers versus each other or the hackers versus the, the, the market? What were the sides? Um, it's normally hackers versus hackers. But yes, I mean, collateral damage. The, the public companies are going to be you know, affected by it. But mainly, I was targeting the hackers, you know, part of that community because it was divided in gangs, just like you said, Crips and Crips and Bloods. Everybody was divided in their own sections, and this led to a lot of wars. Everybody in this hacking group had a role. Some were expert coders who built apps. Others, like him, like Michael, specialized in compromising networks and testing tools. So they were more of a soldier role. And these battles, by this point, hacking on hacking attacks, dominated his life. He's taking down servers and hijacking channels. And in 1999, a fellow TNT member releases a new DOS tool. This was called Trina. I'll put it up on the screen if you want to read up more about it. And it was a motherfucker. Like, it had the potential to shift the power base on IRC. So, Michael encourages him, of course, like, let me do my thing, let me just work on this tool, and if it can increase the intensity of the denial-of-service attack, it's going to be great for us, basically, for the whole group. So, Michael goes on, customizes this tool, and makes it more powerful. Playing with this tool, an idea forms in Young Mafia Boy's head. Rather than having to launch a separate attack from each server, he wanted to be able to centralize and make them work as one. This is, in turn, going to heighten the impact and just save him a lot of time. This is where I introduce you a very problematic concept, okay? I understand it's problematic in 2023 terms. It was basically nothing in 2000 terms, okay? This is what they call it, all right? So, the idea was to have a master and multiple slaves, or zombies, the term that was used to describe compromised computers and servers that have been linked together in the network. I'll play part of the documentary bit where he explains it himself, because I understand it sounds wrong, even though that is technically what is happening. And this documentary is amazing. It's only 20 minutes long. You can find it on YouTube for free. Just type in Michael Culture Documentary and it's under the HB, like the printer company channel. Just watch it. If I can't play some bits of it due to copyright reasons, it's just epic. It's like a 20 minute just quick summary and Michael speaks for himself. So I started establishing different teams to write different sorts of tools. What you're doing is essentially hacking so many networks and setting up this, the master and the slaves, you input a command to the master. It then relays that same command to all the slaves, transmitting packets and fake requests to your target, overwhelming him with so much data that the server shuts off. 
In order to create the most powerful DOS tool, Michael yet again turned to a somewhat of a mentor figure. This guy was basically who Dracus was back in the day for him. He was one of the coders on the platform called Sinkhole. So, to refine the code, he worked to increase the networks of the compromised computers. What he needed to build was free networks using different applications in order to see which would be the most powerful when combined with Sinkhole's application. To do this, at this point, Michael starts infiltrating university networks. So, he discovers the vulnerable password, he discovers the way in, and then he infiltrates it, puts it under his control in order to use it later for the attacks. He would infiltrate Harvard, Duke, Purdue, Columbia, UC Santa Barbara, University of Miami, University of Texas, Berkeley, and UCLA, among many others. Just a flex, just top universities in the country. Michael has the ownership of their networks at this point. After two months of doing this, building his networks, he decides he needs a test. He needs to decide which ones would work the best against TNTs, so the hacking group's rivals on IRC. And to do this, he needs to find a different class of target. A big website, a protected website, something that would make the news. And this is when we get into the nitty-gritty. This is when Project Revolta begins. Just a recap quickly, okay, before um, I go into that, because this is the meat. This is the meat and the potatoes of this story. So, what's going on here, right? At this point, Michael joined one of the most powerful hacker groups, used their tools to hack university devices and networks. He would hack over a handful of university networks and then would be harnessing their combined computing power to attack outside websites. We're going to come to that right now. In other words, he was able to perform denial-of-service attacks using the university networks to overwhelm with traffic outside websites by just clicking enter on his keyboard. More importantly, because we're just gonna go into it, he could time it. He could schedule these attacks. So, he didn't even have to be by his computer, which is why it's going to get really interesting and really hard to prove that Mafia Boy was Michael Culture. Back to the masters and slaves analogy, in order for you to understand how, at the press of a button, all of this would happen, or rather, when he would schedule it to happen at the time that was given. So, when you are to tell the master computer to shoot all of your bandwidth, all of the internet speed that you have available to this one designated site, all the other universities and colleges that he had compromised would respond at exactly the same time. So, this would launch a coordinated attack. So, it's as if he is to say, all right, I go to the master computer and say, here's eBay's IP address. Let's target eBay. eBay, however, will not be his first target, because the target that he chose, after some research, of course, was the search engine. That was the biggest search engine at the time. He chose it because it dealt with a huge amount of internet traffic. And at the time, that world's top search engine was Yahoo. The project had to have a name, and because it aimed to create chaos, Michael thought the writer's name for it would be Rivolta the word that meant uprising, a riot, in Italian. 
So we are in February of 2007, February the 7th. Where were you and why do I know you were listening to Kesha? I just know it and I'm not judging it at all. Kesha still today, it hits, it hits different. It was a school day and Michael just went to school thinking like, I'm gonna put it to test, I'm gonna schedule it while I'm at school, but it's not going to work. Like it's Yahoo, it's a multi-billion dollar company. Why the fuck would it work? I will come home and realize like, okay, this is what I did wrong, like this is where I went wrong, like, and then go back at it. Because, because this is such a sick part of this, he would program everything to be able to see how Yahoo was affected and what they did to protect themselves. So he thinks like he's gonna go check the logs, right, and realize, okay, this is how I need to improve. However, However, at the Yahoo offices, around 1 p.m. that day, people started experiencing some problems, some problems accessing the website. And not just at Yahoo offices, anybody in Canada, in the US, trying to log into Yahoo, it kind of just seemed like the page was not really loading. People typing yahoo.com in their browsers were largely unable to access the site. Others also tried to log into their emails to send an email to somebody, and they also realized they just can't. They just can't load at all. This was the distributed denial of service attack on a massive, massive scale. Um, well, Yahoo, the main, the initiate attack, Yahoo, I launched while I wasn't even at, I wasn't even at home. I was at school while the attack went off. So you just said, like, you time delayed it? Yeah, you could set up a cron tab, which is basically a timer that will no, a very crafty kid, Mafia boy. So are you, George. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to do that. Um, so, okay, so, so then you do that. You, so you're at school. And did you think it was going to work? At first, not at all. I mean, Yahoo was known to be an e-commerce giant. So they dealt with, you know, so much traffic. Uh, they had very intense networks. I did some research on the topology of the network. And they had very serious routers, a lot of backup. Um, I didn't think it was going to work at all. How would you find out it worked? Uh, when I got back and you know I saw some chatter on the net, there was a lot of buzz going around on the chat that I was a part of, and people were, Yahoo went down, Yahoo went down. You know, I was like, uh oh. The reports on this would later say that this was definitely a denial of service attack with attackers who are smart enough and above your average script, kiddie. So as I mentioned, he is at school and he doesn't really know what's going on because he is not online. However, he goes back from school and then obviously logs into his little system to check the damage and also tries to load Yahoo himself and he can't. He just can't access the website. So arriving home just after about 4 p.m., he discovers that Yahoo had indeed been knocked offline. Yahoo was down for an hour that day. That day, just like with every single one of the attacks that we are going to talk about today, Michael then proceeds to log on to the IRC, log on to the chat, and do a bit of bragging. Just, you know, mention like, hey, heard about Yahoo attack? Yeah, it's me. That's Mafia boy that was behind it. And people were just not taking him seriously at all. However, then during that night, some copycat does the same exact thing, the denial of service attack, to a website called buy.com. I went to type buy.com and something called Rakuten popped up, whatever the fuck Rakuten is. Apparently it's what buy.com is right now. So Michael wakes up, right? And he thinks this is a challenge. Somebody is trying 
to claim that this was them, and that's just not going, just not going well by me. So he decides to target other websites and chooses the next one, which would be eBay. There is, like, not even a single page, I think, in this book that details the denial of service attack on eBay, which is so insignificant. Apparently, it was just super easy to take down at the time. So Michael, yet again, after this attack, goes into chats and he just brags and people are not believing him whatsoever. So Michael decides to ask people, who should I hack next? Come on, if you don't believe it, who should I hack next? And some people suggest CNN would be impossible to take down. The reason why people suggested CNN would be impossible to bring down would be because of its advanced networks, the huge traffic numbers, and the fact that it's also hosted a large number of other websites. So Michael is like, okay. He works towards targeting CNN, and in just minutes he launches the attack. He then waits until the site was almost completely down and goes back onto the channel. People at this point are questioning it, right? They don't really know this guy's impact, they don't really know what he had done before, and I think this is probably because he had never claimed the OutlawNet attack, right? The Oregon-US attack, he had never claimed that, so they never really knew that he could do any damage. However, then he moves on to Amazon. And at this point, people are asking him if he's really behind this. Like, how do we know for sure? How can we prove it? These hacks are all happening within a week. And at this point, you can really see that Michael can't stop himself. Like, he needs to prove himself. He needs to get people to believe that he is behind these attacks. So he chooses what he believes will be his last target, E-Trade. He, again, does the same thing. And at this point, really, there is noise about his crimes. The government is talking about it, the attorney general made a speech, they're committed to finding and tracking everybody who is responsible. There are people talking about the vulnerabilities that this is exposing about the internet. And despite of the government clearly looking into it, E-Trade would not be his last hack, because the guy that recruited him into TNT the guy that went under the handle EdPro, asks Michael to take down Dell. Of course, this is all monitored in the IRC chats, because Michael didn't think that making claims in the chats would be dangerous. Everybody talked shit and claimed their hacks on IRC. The difference was that he had talked shit and then backed it up with the attacks on e-commerce giants. There were witnesses, and there was even a transcript of those conversations online. Anybody could have saved that chat and passed it on to authorities. However, this wouldn't be necessary at all, because the FBI already had an agent that was on IRC, that was monitoring these chats and chatting along. He was sitting at the computer as the conversation about CNN was happening. Every day this week, major websites have been outmaneuvered and outmuscled by someone who wanted to take them down. We at the FBI began to receive reports about a threat to the internet, the distributed denial of service attacks. I don't think we should interrupt the energy of the internet by doing it top down and suggesting that mandates and directives be imposed on the private sector. When the operation of the internet openness, Mr. Chairman is always accompanied by a degree of risk. 
let us rewind and then we're gonna go into the point of view of an FBI investigator, Bill Swallow. The coolest name. Coolest name, coolest name. I love when this shit happens, okay. Agents began searching the internet for clues about the identity and soon they found out about the account in the name of Mafia Boy registered to an internet service provider in Canada. So, this is post-sister school attack, right? Now they had their own man monitoring the chats on IRC to see if Mafia Boy pops up again. On February the 7th, so the Yahoo attacks day, Bill Swallow just made his coffee and the night after the attack he was just scrolling through the IRC and he was just listening to the brags of who he described as a loudmouth script kitty. That night Bill Swallow would claim Mafia Boy entered that channel and began boasting about having pulled off a major hack. May the 8th, buy.com goes down, so Mafia Boy goes online, has the attack on Amazon. So when Bill Swallow comes on duty that evening, he's again confronted with the claims by one such Mafia Boy. By this time, he was aware of the situation on the internet, and he was just really there hoping to find leads. Mafia Boy again claims he is responsible for these attacks. There is no way, however, for anybody reading this, including Bill Swallow, to be sure that he is actually behind them. But this is when Mafia Boy puts a challenge to the rest of the IRC members. Who do you guys want me to hit next? And Bill and the others just ignored him. And then there was somebody that suggested CNN and E-Trade might be good targets. Within minutes, Bill Swallow witnesses CNN going down. He tries to log onto the website and he can't. And you know, there are coincidences, but then there's also a kid claiming that he could do this. And then within minutes, the whole website is just down. February the 12th, Dell attack happens. And at this point, Michael says he didn't even log on through Mafia Boy. He just wanted to boast, but he logged on with anonymous details. And just freed from the association from Mafia Boy, and because he thought he was in a private TNT chat room, he just again let his mouth run free. But his chat session from that evening would really become a damning piece of evidence against him. This is yet again because of one such man as Bill Swallow. From Bill's perspective, he yet again saw somebody brag and he suspected that this was Mafia Boy. And on a chat room, Michael would say that he would put his computer in the fireplace. In fact, he said his hard drives are already thrown into the lake. So, for the next few days, because this will be the last attack, the whole FBI team is just looking through the internet clues towards Mafia Boy's identity. Two days after this attack, so February the 14th, the Mounties are in communication with the FBI agents, and this would be called Operation Claymore, basically taking Mafia Boy down. So, Mark Gosselin, the corporal, was appointed a lead investigator charged with tracking down Mafia Boy. They have already discovered Delphi Supernet, so the ISP that he was using at this point, and by February the 15th, Gosselin executed a search warrant for the systems at the Delphi Supernet and Totalnet, another internet service provider, offices in Montreal. He discovered three email addresses that were registered to a mafia boy. 
What had happened here is he used one internet service provider for all of the other attacks and then TotalNet was used for his Dell attack. So basically they now had two internet providers linking to him. And then the third piece of critical evidence was the data from the initial attacks, which had been preserved at UC Santa Barbara. The administrators at the university produced a copy of the attack tool that was used, and that was registered to a user named Mafia Boy. So basically one of the university networks that he infiltrated also had the logs of the account that was used to penetrate those networks. And this was a tedious process. Like, I do not envy anybody that worked on this case just going online, going through the logs, trying to connect anything, anything to this guy and his handle online. Gosselin and the whole FBI team is now going through the tedious process. They're trying to cross-reference things because even the email addresses that they discovered, one of them belonged to somebody completely different, the real estate broker. Because what Michael is doing, he's trying to spoof these IP addresses and make sure that people are just very confused in terms of who is actually behind those hacks. So they have to just cross-reference against different registration details with like dial-up and internet service providers and see does anything match up at all. So Gosselin starts doing exactly that. He is checking account information, cross-checking phone numbers, credit card numbers, names on accounts, mailing addresses, and everything is different. Nothing is matching up except for one phone number. This phone number that most ISPs and credit card companies ask their customers to provide as an alternative contact number. That number looked familiar to Gosselin, and he wondered why. So he searched for addresses against that phone number, and the search returned a match to an address that Gosselin recognized. The lead that he found led him to a hacker incident at the Oregon ISP Outlawnet. The address and the phone number matched the address and the phone number of the suspect in the Oregon ISP case. All because of a bloody dial-up and the internet providers needing your personal information. I don't know about true crimes, okay? Michael did everything wrong. He did a lot of things wrong, but he didn't deserve to go down like this, to be just discovered because of a stupid lead, a stupid mistake. It always happens like this, doesn't it? It always happens like this. It kind of does sound like you're on the side of a criminal, by kind of. And just a bit, it sounds like you're on the side of the bad guy, okay? He went on to do something good. I look into the future as well. I looked into the aftermath of the case, okay? The FBI discovered the source of the DDoS attacks and passed it along to the Mounties. The case was assigned to Corporal Mark Gosselin. When he discovered a phone number linked to one of Mafia Boy's online accounts, he remembered it from the Oregon High School investigation. Most likely, he was looking at the same hacker, and he wasn't about to let Mafia Boy slip away again. This piece of evidence was good enough for the FBI to actually get a warrant. So they got the legal authority to install DNR, dialed number recorders, basically a pen register, a wiretap, right, to the phone lines leading into and out of Mafia Boy's home. The wiretap they would get to begin with was very limited, so they got it actually quite early, from February the 18th. However, the limitations were that they could only get the phone numbers and the dates and the times of calls, but they couldn't actually capture the voices and what was said 
on these calls. However, these tactics were about to change. And this is because of the amount of pressure that was on the feds. I think this is genuinely why they got that wiretap, why they got that warrant that easily, because yes, this was definitely a lead, a good piece of evidence. However, the whole pressure here was because of the vulnerability, because of the internet security that Michael just exposed was a joke, was an actual fucking joke. It would be the government that would come up with that DJ that I have said in my intro, that he, Michael, cost the government $1.7 billion. The loss of money and the way that this was estimated came from a few different things, and we're gonna speak about the estimated part of that in the trial section of the video. But, so, there would be no access to the sites, and some of those sites were buy.com, amazon.com, right, ebay.com, where people actually go and purchase items. So they could calculate that by this amount of time is how long the site was down for, and this is the usual amount of money people spend during that amount of time, right? However, there was also the shares that were lost because the investors would sell those shares when they realized, hey, this website is actually compromised, it might not be the best place to invest into it. And the loss of money and the security breaches is why this reached the President of the United States at that time. Because with the security shaken, Bill Clinton's economy was to go up in flames. So February the 15th, so this is right after February the 12th was when he had the Dell breach. So February the 15th was the day that most people actually would hear the name Mafia Boy. This would be because President Bill Clinton had a cybersecurity summit at the White House, and the FBI put out the word that it wanted to question Mafia Boy along with other two hackers. This is when Michael had learned that the ISP in Toronto was also served with a warrant. So he was catching up, but not so fast, right? He only at this point knew that the internet service provider had a warrant. So they're looking into him, they're, you know, tracking the logs, and he's thinking like, oh, what did I do wrong? Like, did I fuck up somewhere? He doesn't know about the wiretap whatsoever, and the wiretap thing is going to go a step higher. However, as he is listening to the news, he is basically listening to Bill Clinton's speech, he is sitting at his friend Brian's house, and they're watching CNN. How it all collides, the whole cycle. It just never ends. And the anchor gave the brief summary of the upcoming story. The FBI was to announce the names of three hackers, and they mention Mafia Boy. And this is when Michael turns around and tells... Brian, you know, the names that they have just mentioned, one of them is, is me. One of them truly is me. And his best friend kind of tells him, like, oh, you need to speak to your dad about this. Like, no, that is messed up, but you do need to cover your tracks, because if they are looking, and they seem to be looking, you need to have a lawyer. So that is exactly what Michael does. He speaks to his dad about this, and his dad actually brings him into the lawyer's office, they talk to the lawyer, and the lawyer kind of, funnily enough, even in this book, tells him, like, just keep your mouth shut, like, basically do the opposite of what you have been doing so far, keep your mouth fucking shut, and if they come to find you, we will take care of it. The lawyer was very 
optimistic from the get-go. Because, again, of the nuances that I'm telling you about this story, like, how do you actually go and prove that Michael was sitting at his computer and that he was actually the person behind these attacks? We are going back into the investigator's point of view. So they have had a wiretap at this point in Mafia Boy's house. It was only able to monitor the inbound and outbound calls, but they couldn't listen in due to Bill Clinton speaking up, due to the concerns about the security online, this was about to change. And suddenly, the Mounties obtained a court order to intercept all private communications of Mafia Boy and his immediate family. They could listen in. This they obtained on February the 25th, and data interception operations began on February the 27th. They could monitor his calls, and also they had enough for the warrant to monitor anything that he was doing online. So, they could get the logs from his ISP, from his internet service provider. They are now following his type of behavior, because obviously there's multiple people using this computer at the house, so they have to decipher, first of all, what's like just online gaming, what's him sending emails, compared to what's him actually hacking and doing something malicious. And also, when is it that Mafia Boy is the person logged in, not Lorenzo, his brother, and not his dad, just using the computer for other purposes. So they're following the pattern of behavior. 
And on his active days, they found out he often operated until 3 or 4 a.m. So they set up a system to basically go through the daily download of data, intercepting shortly after 4 a.m., when he was known to quit for the night. When the operation ended 43 days later, they collected 7.6 gigabytes of raw data. Unbeknownst to Michael, these agents are now following everything that he does online. They're following his web searches, his online gaming, and IRC chat sessions. During one session, these agents actually watched him in real time as he attempted hacks and had to retype the commands a couple of times before he got them right. He always seemed to be accessing accounts using logins and passwords that other hackers had given to him. So it's just like extra layer of proof that they have that this is him having the knowledge and also being behind the hacks. They also captured some gems between him and his dad when it comes to the wiretap. So they captured this conversation again, I'll put it on the screen, where Mike kind of outs himself, obviously not knowing that the agents are listening. His dad asks him about this page online, and Michael says, oh, I don't know, it says everything, there's all kinds of stuff. His dad says, is it good enough? They got you. And Michael says, they got me, they know shit. The pressure was starting to get to Michael, even though, yes, there were these conversations that kind of prove otherwise, that he was totally fine and that nobody knew anything about him or would never know anything on him. Only a couple of weeks ago, he enjoyed the press coverage, he enjoyed the notoriety, but all of that changed on March the 8th when another hacker was actually arrested. And this is when he realized, because yet again, at this point, he's 15, right? This is when he realized, like, oh, this has implications, like, I can go to jail. He realized that each charge carries up to 15 years in prison. 60 days. 60 days is how long the investigators have had to have this wiretap operation to monitor the IP logs and also the phone calls coming in and out of the culture household. 43 days in, the investigators discovered we might not just be able to bring the sun down, we might also have something against the dead. So while listening to these phone call conversations, they recorded Michael's dad raging over some business deal that had gone bad. Some guy screwed him over, and his dad was just like typically Italian, like saying things like, break a few legs, I can understand. So obviously with Italian background and the implications there, the FBI thought like, okay, there might be something here, like, there are real threats being made here, whether his dad is part of the mafia or not, like, there is really violence that is about to be incited. So, they went in to arrest the dad and then decided to arrest both of them. In Michael's opinion, the police saw the opportunity to gain leverage by arresting both him and his dad on the same night. This was likely seen as a good reason for cutting short the wiretapping, especially considering they knew that he was a mafia boy. They had him on tape taking credit for the attacks and had recorded him committing other breaches of computer system security. So, on April the 14th, rather actually around 3 a.m., on April the 15th, the decision was made to raid their house. 
The book says, Mafia boy and his mafia dad were both going down. One-liners, journalistic writing. This is it. This is what we're all here for. So, Michael wasn't at home when they raided his house. They took the father into the custody and were informed that he was just staying at his friend's house. So, when the Mounties arrived at the friend's house, Mafia Boy was just standing outside, fully dressed and relaxed. He looked as if he was just waiting for them or possibly waiting for a cab. He gets arrested and gets transported in a van. And the lawyer goes to visit him. Of course, Michael isn't saying shit. But the lawyer tells him he can't get him out until Monday. So, like, his dad can leave that evening, but he can't get him out until Monday. So, Michael stays in prison over the weekend, just feeling the taste of what he actually might need to face. So, so what happens when the cops come to get you? Because eventually they got you. Yeah, um, they came for me. Uh, it took about three months after the initial attacks. And the whole surprising thing was is that I wasn't even at home when they came for the bus. Where were you? I was at a friend's house watching Goodfellas. <laughs> you know, so who knew? Thinking if I got into that kind of crime, I'd be okay right now, right? Look, I mean, when you're watching uh, Goodfellas, you think you're not in such a bad situation anymore, right? <laughs> and so then what happened? So, you, so you're, you're watching Goodfellas, they go to your house? Yeah, well, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm watching the movie. I'm at my friend's house. Uh, it's Friday night. I'm enjoying myself, and all of a sudden, I get a phone call. And I'm thinking, you know, is this an ex-girlfriend? Who could this be, you know? And then I look at the phone, I see the caller ID, and it's my it's my house calling. This is when I started to feel a bit uneasy, and I answered the phone, I'm like, hello? And it's my father, and he's like, uh, where are you? I'm like, I'm where I told you I'd be, I'm at my friend's house. He's like, they're here. And I'm just like, in the tone of his voice, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And this is what he meant by to prepare, you know? And he's like, the RCMP is here. They're here with the FBI. Uh, there's people all over the house, and they're looking for you. <laughs> Did you get on your bike and ride home? <laughs> what are you doing? Honestly, I wouldn't even... It was so late at night, I wouldn't have even found my way home. But uh, no, they actually requested that I go to the corner of my friend's street and wait for them to come arrest me. On Monday, the judge hits him with the bail conditions. He wasn't allowed to use the internet or any computers except under adult supervision. He had to stay away from places like libraries, which had free access to the computers, that's why, and he wasn't allowed to use the cell phone with internet access. He wasn't allowed to see three of his best friends, and there was a curfew that was imposed to him. I think the friends thing was also because, well, they would have computers at their house, but this is truly what impacted Michael, and what he never, I think, after reading this book, really even thought through. Like, oh, there will be consequences, and the consequences also will affect every part of your life. So, Michael thinks, cool, that is not going to last for long. Like, my lawyer, Jan, Jan, by the way, Jan Romanowski, okay, sick lawyer. Sick lawyer just based off of this book. Sick fucking lawyer, cool props to you. I have Googled you, sir, and I respect you. Cool. Michael thinks he's just gonna eat pizza and go home. But the FBI, of course, had other plans, because there was a media circus that was about to ensue. It would say a 15-year-old boy has been arrested in connection with those very serious cyber attacks that took place earlier this year. 
Press didn't know him by his name because he was a minor, so his name will be protected, but they knew that he went to Riverdale High School, so they would go around and harass kids, asking them do they know who Mafia Boy is. Somebody slipped up or somehow they found out and everybody knew. The whole school knew and the media then found out, so sensationalizing just happens, you know, the way that it would in the early 2000s, when there was just absolutely no censoring of anything ever. So, he hears of himself as this evil genius. The media, why did I just say evil in the most weird way? <laughs> I just, like, heard it in my head, but evil. How did you even say that? Anyways, media started calling him smart, and the police, of course, was trying to dumb him down and call him extremely dumb, like, oh, this was just the work of a script kitty, while the media was just blowing this story up and saying how he did what he did, which is had taken the internet down and exposed so many vulnerabilities in internet security. Whichever way you want to see it, I think, obviously, like with every story, it's somewhere in between, right? Was he a genius? Probably not. Was he dumb? Probably not. I wouldn't know how to do any of that in year 2000 or right now. So, I think the truth is always somewhere in between. We're now back into Michael's point of view, because this is now mid-April. The police had had their wiretap, they're just gathering their evidence and building their case, really, because he's out on bail, but he knows that there is a trial coming up, he just doesn't know when. He is cut off from internet access from his friends. He really said in this um, chapter that the only benefit to it was the attention that he was getting from the girls. Like, the girls liked him before, he was not a bad-looking guy, but here, truly, they kind of saw him as a bad boy, you know, they wanted to date the infamous mafia boy, and that's the only benefit that he really saw to this. So, he spent the summer waiting for the information that would dictate his future. And late in the summer, he just got yet again the taste of what he might face, because he was seeing, well, rather, he was in contact with his friends, and that was the breach of his bail rules, so he was sent to a detention center for two days. It was, as Michael described, the shittiest summer. Like, just the lousiest summer of his life. However, then, on August the 3rd, he heard about his charges, and there were 64 of them. Like, whoever those FBI agents were, again, I do not envy them, just going through this wiretap, being like, oh, that sounds like a charge, oh, yeah, but that IP log, that's a criminal offense, and just counting to 64 motherfucking charges. And these were in connection with attacks that he launched before and after hitting CNN.com. At this point, they still haven't received copies of the evidence against him, but the Crown Prosecutor had enough to go after him for the websites that he knocked offline and the many computers that he compromised while under surveillance. They wanted to hit him with as many charges as possible. I mean, it's obvious they counted to 60 motherfucking four. And this is to scare him, send him to jail, and obviously make example out of Michael Kalche. Something to mention here. When investigators picked apart his computers, they found no technical evidence linking him to the attacks. His hard drives weren't anywhere to be found. 
The other evidence maybe was at the bottom of the lakes, like Michael had insinuated himself. Truly, without the wiretap and the evidence that was captured by the Santa Barbara University administrators, the Mounties wouldn't have had a case. And that is... That is probably, like, what was hurting Michael at the time. Like, once he realized that, like, oh, he was that good, but he also, like, really just had a minimal error, like, fucked up with that school outflow net breach at the point, and that connected him to this, and that's why they got a warrant in the first place for the wiretap, and the wiretap was actually what got him, like, not even the fact that he was you know, skillful at what he was doing, that must have hurt. Like, that just must have fucking stung. Stung like a bitch. He is 16 at this point, right? And facing 64 charges, what was it, that can put him into juvenile detention center for a maximum of two years. He still also has to follow through with the bail conditions, can't see his friends, can't really attend school without people losing their fucking mind. His life was in shambles. Next, Michael breached his bail conditions once again. He really didn't care about school. I think that's like a common pattern here, because he just cared about computers. Now, he do couldn't do anything, really, so he just decided to protest. So, he got suspended for his bad behavior in school, and the judge didn't take mercy. He just basically sent him to a detention center. However, then his lawyer managed to get him home for Christmas, based off of Michael being able to, like, keep a job while he was outside, and also the lawyer explained, like, how Michael's life was affected by the media attention that he was getting. So, those are, like, the circumstances that went into his favor. He also, at this point, the lawyer felt that the prosecution will only have superficial evidence, because how will they ever prove that he was the one behind the computer at trial? If Michael was to plead guilty, the prosecution had actually offered to be more lenient on him. So, this is what, based off of, like, his lawyer's advice, Michael decides to do thinking that the scrutiny is going to go away. But this was obviously far from the truth. He would plead guilty to 56 out of somewhere I have read they have built up to 66 charges in the end, and this would only be the Revolta-related attacks, right? Here we come again to the point of, like, was he behind Outlawnet attacks or not? Michael would say in the book that he was. At the time, as we know, they have suspected his brother might be behind one of the attacks. Never proven. Nothing ever came out of that. Before the trial, this case went to the social worker that's called Henny Chung to give their recommendation. Chung recommended a couple of things, like, a lot of things. He said that Michael should be sentenced to six months in custody, that he should then stay in probation until he turned 18, that he should also make charitable donations to Crime Victims Associate Center, do some community service, and also be forbidden from visiting the websites that he had broken into, attend school or work full-time. Basically, like, a roster of things for him to do. And he was basing this off of his report stating that several times Michael had accepted responsibility for his crimes, but Chung felt that there was some likelihood of recidivism, that he's going to re-offend if he was out. This is why he decided to recommend custody, 
even though it's not recommended to you who commit a first property offense. Chung was also the one to state that his attacks had caused $1.7 billion in damages, and he took this figure, according to Michael, from a press report. So, let us talk about the trial and about this digit and about, basically, what went into Michael's favor and what didn't. So, the trial that happened in summer of 2001, if I were to describe it in, like, a couple of words, it would be heavy on the metaphors, okay, about the technology trying to relate this to the public, to make them realize, like, what Michael had actually done. And as I mentioned, in some ways, that did work, and in some, it just, just fucking didn't. So, this is from Michael's point of view, like, how the trial had went, and he details it in his book. So, let's speak about the prosecution first. Their first witness, and actually, no, it was, like, the first witness to understand, but it was this guy who was the internet security expert called Alan Poller. And his whole spiel was to explain how the websites couldn't protect themselves, right? And I think this is super interesting when you compare it to the actual human victims that are on trial. They really try to humanize machines and websites and say, like, well, they weren't asking for it, right? It was literally that, but with computers in 2000. So, this expert with multiple degrees describes those attacks, saying the sites just couldn't defend themselves. In Michael's opinion, this is wrong, as the websites were able to protect themselves, even in the late 90s and early 2000s, the same way they are able to protect themselves today. And the problem of making this relatable and just understandable to the jury, to the audience, was obvious when Pollard on stand kind of described the attacks as gang violence in front of a network-based clubhouse. In some parts, actually, Pollard's testimony was useful to portray it to the jury with real-life examples. He would say that the reality is that it's very much like a person with a highly communicable disease, who has broken into his home and he is walking around their home. But because they don't have a clue what this person had touched, now they have the choice of either destroying the entire house or figuring out that he had only walked in the kitchen and just maybe destroying the kitchen. Now, for this next bit to make sense, we have to go to Michael speaking to that social worker who was making recommendations for him, right? So, during that interview, Michael had cheekily said that what he was actually doing, committing those denial-of-service attacks, is testing the security of those websites in order to help them make things safer. So, that's bullshit, right? Michael did go on to do something along those lines very much after this trial and everything that I'm telling you today. So, Pollard, however, was asked about this while he was on the stand, the internet security expert. And he had said that every one of those attacks makes us all a little less safe because it paints a picture. It shows a roadmap of what is possible to people who might want to do it. So, he thinks that actually the complete opposite is true. That what Michael was doing was making the internet less secure by running his so-called tests. When he was cross-examined by Michael's lawyer, Pollard compared rerouting traffic to having a setup of multiple bridges. 
If an attack knocked out a couple of bridges, traffic could flow onto one of the other bridges that are left, right? So, yes, this is, in a way, fighting off the attack. But Parler said that companies don't use rerouting because it's way too much money, that it costs them too much money to keep these websites secure. And to Michael, this actually worked into his favor, because by saying this, Parler contradicted what he had said earlier, that a DOS attack can't be defended against, because now he's saying we can actually defend it, but it just costs people a lot of money. In short, this expert's quote-unquote testimony really did a lot less damage than Michael had expected. Next, on the stand, the value of the damages was put into question, because the value of 1.7 billion was always given by the authorities, only by the feds, and then by that social worker who found it in other media reports. However, though, this was Corporal Gosselin that was on the stand, and he explained that this figure was projected by a private firm in the States. He said the police eventually asked the FBI to gather the estimates from all of the companies and universities that had been hit. Some of them had actually declined because they didn't want like, to draw attention to how much money they have lost. And then the lawyer rose to object to the claims of damages were hearsay, because none of the companies was willing to testify in court. So, yes, that is one point that goes towards Michael's testimony, but also the projection, right, of the damages means that what if it's exaggerated? Like, if the court allowed exaggerated claims of damages to be entered into evidence, it could have a serious impact on his sentencing, but also if Jan was to poke holes, his lawyer, to poke holes in this, then it can go into his favor, because why are no companies testifying? Why do we not know about the damages and the actual impact? As it ended up yet again, this is another person on the stand that did him a favor by knocking down the amount to 1.7 billion figure. This corporal was also useful in order to show that Michael didn't actually have any financial gain. Like, he wasn't actually profiting out of this. He was purely doing it just to prove himself online. After this, the social worker took the stand, and he testified that Mafia Boy has shown no remorse, is likely to hack again, and needed a more structured life and help to sort out with his moral reasoning. What Michael's lawyer had found out, however, and even Michael kind of observing that, thought that this was a low blow, but, you know, as long as it went into his favor, I guess it was fine. What um, Jan had found out was that Schung actually pursued a diploma in social work, but that he had dropped out of the university, because social work was his area of interest. So he never actually had a diploma, so Jan obviously went after Chung's lack of expertise. The other holes that Jan was poking was that Chung actually took reports but never followed up with people in schools that Michael went to. So he didn't really have the full picture of Michael's character. Which is why his lawyer actually got a criminologist to evaluate him, Michael, to counterweight Chung, and in general, just this testimony yet again did more good to him than he expected. Then it was time to wait for the judge's decision. 
So, speaking of sentencing, under Canadian law, Mafia Boy, who was 14 to 15 at the time of the attacks, could receive up to two years in juvenile detention. And an adult charged with the same crimes could be sentenced to up to 10 years. So, the Montreal Youth Court sentenced Michael on September the 12th, 2001, to eight months of open custody, one year of probation, restricted use of internet, and a small fine. I have read different amounts for this small fine. Most articles online state it was about $250, which is funny. (laughs) Like, a lot of people in the comments just say, like, oh, he had to pay $250 while he cost the country almost $2 billion. Doesn't really... I don't have much of an input because I don't even know if that is true, also what it would be based on, like why $250. The way that Michael saw it is eight months and then probation, he would be 19 by the time that he was finally finished with his sentence, meaning that four years of his life, at least, would have been drastically altered as a result of his crimes, as a result of a couple of days of his crimes, if we are really honest, because like, even if we count the outlawed crime, it's maybe a week that he was doing these denial-of-service attacks. A week, and then four years of his life are to be affected, and the rest of his life completely altered. He said after the sentencing in court that Corporal Gosling actually approached him and pulled his hand out of the pocket and handed him his business card that it was kind of like a no-hard-feelings thing, like, oh, you serve your sentence and you come and help us. And if true, like, you always feel with this case kind of like the Catch Me If You Can, the movie with Tom Hanks, like, do they think he's smart or do they think he's dumb? Like, do they want him on his side or do they just not want him to commit more crimes? Like, which one is it? Which one is it? Because they can't say that he is a genius. They can't say he's super smart. They can't say... Oh, this is great, but also we would benefit from having one of you on our side. The way that Michael would describe his sentence is that on weekdays he would go to high school and different facility on the West Island. When not working or doing homework, he would just be sitting around with the other kids watching TV or just smoking outside. And after the curfew, he would just read books. The lack of the access to the internet computers really made him rediscover his love for reading. Of course, what people didn't really know was that some of those books were still on computer programming. In May of 2003, Michael's sentence was finished. He served eight months in custody and then a year of probation. He was done. He was allowed to see his best friend Brian for the first time in just over three years. And this is truly when I think what hit him was how everything had changed, you know? Like, Brian had different friends, he was hanging out with different people, other people have fallen into bad crowds. His whole life had been affected because of his crimes. He would say he thinks constantly about how far ahead he would be today if he hadn't initiated his attacks in the year 2000. He would have finished high school and college, He would have maybe had his own company, worked in the security industry, earning a great salary, and just challenging himself, but in a healthy way. And yes, all of his actions earned him a measure of fame. They enabled him to write the book that I have read. They haven't made him rich or contributed to his happiness. 
So he had decided to embark on the next phase of his life and go back to school to gain the knowledge required to work in computer security. Do you think you did it? I mean, I know it, it, it's years later. You were 15 years old. And that's why I'm not busting you too much because right? you were a kid at the time, right? But do you feel like you did something wrong? Absolutely. Listen, I regret what I did, you know, but a lot of people seem to forget the fact that I was 15 years old. You know, you're a misguided kid. And, I mean, I'm not trying to say, you know, that's the only reason, like, oh, I was 15, like, but I personally feel bad about what I did. And I'm trying to look at ways now how to better the situation and better the internet and help people rather than cause damage. So let us speak where this case is now. Had he done it? Had he actually followed through? Because this book was indeed written in 2011. He might have fallen off the fucking rails again. Well, he didn't, okay? He proceeded to make the public aware of the issues surrounding internet security. And that was most really impacted in the years later, like 2011 to 2013, people were still really pointing to this case. And former CIA agents, different people in the government attributed the significant improvement in online security to Mafia Boy's actions and to his denial-of-service attacks. Post this book in 2017, a documentary called Revolta came out that I have told you you can find on YouTube on this case. And then, at the age of 31, Michael started his own cybersecurity company called Optimal Secure. He is now and has been using his skills for the greater good and focusing on the financial sector in Montreal, Toronto. So he would be performing penetration testing for local companies, showing them how vulnerable they are. This is actually very random, but I don't want to say it's surprising, right? Like, HP made a documentary on him. However, Michael is actually the one to point towards printers as one device that a lot of hackers use in order to gain network access and exploit vulnerabilities in the company. According to him, printers and other internet-connected devices are the leading vulnerabilities that lead to data breaches. This is mostly because you don't think about it, right? You just buy a printer and then you plug it in with the default settings straight out of the box. However, then this means that this problem isn't unique because everybody's really following the same pattern of behavior and even some medium-sized businesses and some Fortune 250 companies have been found guilty of neglecting the security of these devices. I had to dig a bit on Michael beyond this point of like making a documentary for HP, talking about printers and doing interviews. And this, I think, is actually a really commendable thing, okay? So I'll tell you what I mean. Basically, to find news on him beyond 2017, I had to look him up, found his LinkedIn, you know, the usual. <laughs> Google search. It's uh, totally not creepy and completely acceptable, okay? He is now... I don't know if he's still doing Optimal Secure. The website is still alive, so I think he is. But he is also on the advisory board of this company that is promising to give users the power to take back the internet one layer at a time. It's some blockchain stuff. I do not understand it. I barely understood the information to tell you about this case, okay? But today, he is what is called a white hat hacker. Companies hire him to help identify security flaws in their systems and design better security features. He says the internet is a far scarier place today than it was back in 2000. According to Michael, before, people did it for notoriety, the way he did. 
Today, the gains are pretty much just monetary and malicious. Today, we are dealing with malicious hackers who are increasingly advanced and far more dangerous than ever. The result is increased danger to everyone, from basic PC users to global corporations and governments. Michael says we are living in an age of Mafia Boy 2.0. I will leave you with these words from Michael, because even though he wrote his book in 2011, what he said back then on security still applies 12 years later. The right way to attack the problem is to improve the infrastructure, not envision how to disable it. There should be legislation that goes after the buggy software that floods the market. The government should work with the programming and web communities to create and enforce strong standards that raise the fundamental level of security at the network level. We should secure the flawed aspects of the internet, not plan to shut it down. You can find interviews with Michael close to the time of his crimes. He released his book and the documentary, and for some time the focus was on the notoriety. But the focus eventually shifted to the topic of internet security, which the judge was not convinced about during the trial. Although Michael could have chosen to solely live off his fame as Mafia Boy, he decided to return to his roots as a hacker and make a conscious decision to prioritize ethics over infamy. By leaving Mafia Boy behind, Michael Kalche was reborn. And that is the case of Michael Kalche, known as Mafia Boy. Michael, if you are watching this, if you find it by me posting this case on Twitter, call me. In a, in a totally normal way. I want an interview, okay? <laughs> I just want to speak with you because I have so many questions. He mentions certain hacks that have happened in um, the Kosovo War in Serbia, basically, due to, like, NATO bombing and stuff. And, like, I want to know more on that. I want to know more on his background. I want to know more details and, like, you know the way that he would not dumb down, but explain what he did and make it approachable to the public, because I think he does a really good job in the book, but, like, obviously he would be better than me telling this case. So many questions. Did he play Super Mario? Nintendo? You know, all of the important questions that I would ask Michael. So, hey, I might reach out to the man and see if he wants to jump on. Because he hasn't done any interviews recently. It's truly gutting. It's truly gutting. I think he's like 39 now. Can I do math? I know I can't. Like, let's just have an awkward moment of me doing a math. He was born in 1984. Yeah, he's 39, right? Oh, God, the actual dread. The actual dread with numbers are in question. Cool. Well, if you like that deep dive and want more of me, Make sure you like and subscribe, and I will be seeing you in two weeks' time. I am scheduling this, so I'm recording this in February, and I will probably be recording the other case in, like, very, like, late February or beginning of March, so that I can have a couple of weeks off in March, okay? Everybody needs some annual leave in their life, all right? Okay, cool. There's literally nobody screaming at you. Nobody's judging you, and everybody understands the need for a holiday, right? Right. Cool. Stick around and I'll be seeing you in two weeks' time. My out, my out, totally insane, totally insane.